WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latte from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Go back to the early 80s, mid-80s. AIDS hits New York City like a pandemic. People are scared. They don't know what, how it transmits, how you can get it. People didn't know. People just started, like, disappearing. Like, one day they were there, and the next day they were gone. Like, where did they go? They would come into the hospital, be admitted to my ICU, and die. They're people. They're not drug users. They're not patients. They're not hemophiliacs. They're people. Yes, we are being victimized, but we are not victims. We're models of resistance. We knew so little in the beginning. It was really, a, it was really like walking through a minefield. It was hard fought. Lives were lost. And it was activists. We changed the world. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. Those voices you heard are all people you can meet in a podcast series I've been reporting for the past several months. It's called Blind Spot: The Plague in the Shadows. It's a history of the early years of the HIV and AIDS epidemic in the United States, and it's now out in the world. You can find the episodes right now at blindspotpodcast.org. It is full of intimate, deeply personal stories of quiet acts of heroism, of people who refused to accept the pernicious idea that nothing could be done. And as we've shared those stories with listeners, a lot of people have responded by saying they want to share their story too. So this week, we're doing something special. We're making space to hear your stories from the AIDS epidemic. As I've worked on this series, I've been reminded that the history of HIV and AIDS is one of individuals stepping up where institutions failed, leading with love to care for one another and their communities when no one else would. So if HIV and AIDS touched your life or your community, and you are someone you know stepped up to respond with care and support in some way, tell me about it. 844-745-8255. That's 844-745-TALK. We often hear about the very public daring activism that made such a huge difference in the early part of this epidemic. Think ACT UP. And that's hugely important history. But we hear less often about the more intimate heroism of mutual aid, about the radical acts of caretaking. Help us document that history. If you've got a story to add, please share it. And as we take your calls, I'll be joined by some incredible people who have lived and documented and loved this history themselves. With me in the studio now is Kia Labeja, a photographer and performance artist who grew up here in New York, living with HIV. She's shown her work all over the world, from the Tate Modern in London to the Whitney here in New York. She's currently artist-in-residence at the Green Space at WNYC. Kia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I am also joined by one of Kia's family friends, Grammy, Emmy, and Tony Award-winning actor Andre DeShields. <laughs> of Town and The Wiz and much, 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 much more. Andre has been stealing the show on Broadway stages for decades, but also he has been a force of love in Kia's life. Mm. Andre, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kai Ubuntu. I am because you are. Oh, mm. lovely, lovely. Um, Kia, let's start with you. You, you were born with HIV in 1990. Mm -hmm. Both your parents were HIV positive. Mm -hmm. uh, your mom, Quan Bennett, passed 20 years ago when you yeah. were 14 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, as one of our producers said when uh, she heard your story on the podcast, she said, that also means it's been 20 years since Kia heard her mom's laugh. Mm -hmm. How do you remember her? 
You know, it's so funny. People ask me this question a lot, and um, I spend so much time, I think, telling maybe the same story over and over and over again that sometimes I have to pause to really think about it. Um, But I would say that my mother was the most warm, welcoming, beautiful, soulful person um, I've ever encountered in my life. I mean, she was also my mother. I grew in her womb. She brought me here. Mm. Um, But she was funny and creative. Um, People used to say, my friends, when they would come over to the house, would always say, wow, every time I come to your house, it's arranged completely different. My mom always changed the furniture. (laughs) She was always creating beautiful, safe, loving, warm spaces for everyone that she knew. Um, And she was a fighter. And I think she was somebody that through, you know, went through a lot in her life and towards, you know, the end of it, just really wanted to be in a space of healing and loving herself and loving those around her. And, um, yeah, I I think about her every day. I feel her inside of me every day. I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, I look just like her. Um, <laughs> I have the same laugh. Um, and uh, I remember this one day I was waiting for the bus with my mom and she said something out loud and she said, oh my God, I sounded just like my mother. And I kind of laughed at her about it and she was like, <clears throat> Well, one day you're going to say something (laughs) and you're going to sound exactly like me and you're going to think of this moment. And I remember the day that it happened and I think about it now all the time. I just have that memory of being outside waiting for the bus for school and being like, wow, she told me that one day I would sound just like her and here we are, you know. Andre, you were friends with Kia's mom. Um, she was a stage manager for a show you were in, I believe, and that as was Kia's father was a drummer in that show. Um, do you remember Kia as a kid? How did how did she come into your life? First of all, I remember Quan Bennett with nothing but love. Mm. I was not in the show. I was directing the show. Ah. Up at the Heckscher House, which is now the um, El Museo Barrio on 104th and 5th Avenue. Mm-hmm. We were working in a group called Amas, which was founded by Rosetta Lenoir. I remember Kia as a bundle (laughs) of Kwan's joy. Mm. Kwan was full of joy at the same time that she was full of energy and she was a genius at efficiency. Which I was glad that she was my stage manager. <laughs> I never heard the word no from Kwan. Right, right. I would ask a question, she would say yes, give me a minute. At the time, Kia was the spit of her mother. When you saw this bundle of joy, it was like, oh, Kwan has two heads. And we were all happy for her. Uh, uh, Yes, indeed. What did it mean to have somebody like Andre in your life, Kia? And I and I mean, you know, specific. I mean, there's many things I can imagine that it was like to have somebody like Andre in your life. But thinking about, you know, your mom was um, an AIDS activist. Um, uh, HIV was such a part of your childhood and your family's story. what kind, what, did, what did it mean to have someone like Andre around who had also lived so much with the epidemic? Um, uh, I don't know. What, can you reflect on that? What did it mean for you? Well, this is something we've never talked about. Okay. And when I think about Andre, one of the first things, one of my f- first memories, I think of my mom came to pick me up from school one day in elementary school. And she was like, um, Andre got us tickets to see Cats. And so I left school, and I guess maybe it was like a matinee or something, because I remember leaving school early. And I remember seeing Cats on Broadway, and I remember that changing my life, the trajectory of my life, probably. Wow. Um, Because I really fell in love with musicals, and I fell in love with theater. And I studied musical theater in high school, and I was kind of on that path, but I really fell in love with image making and photography. And so I brought what I saw in theater into the images that I make. And so... I would have to say that a lot of that is because this beautiful human right here got me tickets to Cats. Did you know that was a bit, <laughs> such a big deal in her life? Audrey? I did not know it was such a big deal per se in Kia's life. 
But I know as a black man, having grown up in Baltimore, having no access to the destiny that I knew was mine to experience, that what I should be doing is opening the door for even people who don't express an interest in the arts, because I have learned that whatever it is you pursue in your life, you will be better at it if you have been embraced by the arts. Mm. Yes, indeed. Yes. And because of the love that I shared with Kwan, her mother, I can make this happen for you. Do you want to take advantage of it? <laughs> and she said, yes, I'll, get her, I'll pull her out of school. <laughs> and, we, and we will take advantage of this opportunity. Mm-hmm. You, you, and you sang at Kwan's funeral um, when she passed. Um, Are you corroborating that? Yes. Did I? Yeah, so at my mom's memorial, um, wow, it's so crazy to think that it's been 20 years. Actually, my brother actually just sent me footage of it, so I actually have this footage. Um, but Andre did sing a cappella at my mother's memorial. And um, I don't know, if you're feeling up to it, maybe would you mind blessing us? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm allowing all the information to fall together. I must have sung something from The Wiz then. Yeah. And if I sang from The Wiz, it was my signature song. Yes. Believe in yourself. It absolutely was believe in yourself. Um. And I remember... <laughs> Weeping, and when I think about it now, I think about weeping. And if you sing it now, I will probably weep for all of these people who are listening over the Mr. radio. Mr. Kai, right? Maybe please. Maybe please. Okay, may I start with an apology? I've been working all night this past week. I think you can hear the stress in my voice, but I cannot say no to Kia. If you believe within your heart, you know that no one can change the path that you must Go, believe what you feel, and know your right, because the time will come around when you say it's yours. Believe there's a reason to be. Believe you can make time stand still And know from the moment you try If you believe, I know you will Believe in yourself WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery's new podcast, Black History for Real. Introducing you to the most overlooked black history makers you should already know about. Historical tea is the hottest and it pours the best. Hosted by Francesca Ramsey and Conscious Lee. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on 2.5 or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting 129. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, we're talking about the early years of the HIV and AIDS epidemic in the United States. I've spent the past several months making a podcast on that history in partnership with History Channel and The Nation magazine. It's called Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. And as we've shared the stories we collected in that podcast, I've heard from so many people who want to add their own experience to the history. So that's what we're doing this week, asking you to help us document the history of radical caretaking and mutual aid that defines so much of this epidemic. So if HIV and AIDS touched your life or your community and you or someone you know stepped up to help respond in some way, tell me about it. 844-745-8255. That's 844-745-TALK. We've heard from two people already tonight, artist Kia LaBeja and award-winning performer Andre DeShields. They both have a powerful connection with one another uh, and with this epidemic um, through community and family and love. Uh, and here's a voicemail we received from a listener, Bill, in Portland, Maine. My name is Bill. I am a recently retired primary care physician currently living in Portland, Maine. In 1981, I was a third-year medical student in, at New Jersey Medical School in Newark. The fascination I felt as a young, soon-to-be doctor on the cusp of a new illness that we didn't understand was of great interest. But I also felt the fear of my own vulnerability and those around me, realizing that we could also succumb to this virus. And then I was filled with sadness of the memories of holding hands of people dying we were unable to treat. It is something that needs to be told. That was Bill in Portland, Maine. And let's go to Kamika in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Kamika, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for calling, Kamika. You have a memory you want to share? Yes. Uh, so when I was about probably between nine and 10, my aunt came to live with us and I didn't know all at the time, but I knew she had AIDS and that was like a big buzzword at the time. And, um, it turns out that my mom, her youngest sister took her in when she was dying. By the time she came to live with us, she was really, really ill. And, um, no one else wanted to take her in. She was a nurse in Brooklyn. She had gotten AIDS through a shake on HIV through um, a needle prick at work and lived with um, the disease for a, a, a probably a year and a half or two years before she came to live with us. And, um, or, or maybe longer, we don't really know. And um, she was really ill and we shared a room together. I was as a young kid and um, I think my mom, my aunt Merle is the only person that I know that closely that um, passed away of this illness. Um, she eventually went to live with our, her, my cousins, uh, much later, um, right before she passed away. And I remember us driving down to South Florida to see her um, right before she passed. Mm. And when she had passed, I asked to see her. I was like, they're like, you don't want to see her. She's gone. But I really wanted to see her. One, because I couldn't believe it. This is somebody I slept next to in my room. And I also just didn't understand the disease as a, as a kid. Right. But it was live and up close. And um, now looking back, you know, just, just realizing how, what was going on and learning about treatments at such a young age and what she was going through. My mom kind of exposed, it to us, exposed us to it all. Mm. And I also realize now what a thing my mom did because nobody wanted to take my aunt in and she was really sick mm. and nobody understood. Um, and she took care of her. She cleaned her up when she had, you know, really bad accidents. She, you know, made sure and, and disinfected the house. We didn't, you know, we didn't know how to live or what to do or nobody really understood, you know. It was a time of a lot of misinformation. What could happen. Mm. Right. And so, you know, you get all this information, like, you know, if you have a person live with you who has AIDS, your whole family's going to get AIDS. Mm. Your whole family's going to have HIV. And so, you know, my mom was disinfecting dishes. I remember that really clearly, disinfecting mm. the plates, using bleach in the house, you know, cleaning. But even with all of that, I still shared a room with her and slept right next to her. You still cared um, for her, even in, still, in the course of fear. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, you know, being family, being close to her, like, she was never kept from being close to us. And I remember that very clearly. Um, and I thought that was really... 
when I'm looking back, I just thought it was really wonderful that she got to experience that. Thank you for sharing that memory, Kamika. Let's go to Dale in Stanford, Connecticut. Dale, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Do you have a memory you want to share? I Absolutely. I have 10 years of memories, actually. I was a social worker during the height of the AIDS epidemic in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I worked exclusively with marginalized African-American women and children and adolescents with HIV and AIDS. Uh, My caseload started out being around uh, four families. It went to 49 families uh, very, very quickly, which amounted to about 100, 100 women and children I was serving. Mm -hmm. And um, there is one story uh, out of the millions of stories that I could tell, I've actually written a book about it now, uh, just this, this month, uh, this year. Um, the story that stands out the, the most in my mind is one in which I had two little children dying in the hospital at the same time, one room apart. I will tell the story of one of them. This is an 18-month-old baby who every day was surrounded by four generations of women, her young mother, who was 19, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother. The baby was attached to tubes that went up her nose and down into her lungs and chest and tubes coming out, uh, I'm sorry, that down into her throat, and she had chest tubes, two on each side of her body. Uh, the mother had not been able to hold the child in about a week. Every single day, I would go to offer comfort and support and be able to explain what was happening to the baby because the women, all, all four of them, were not comfortable asking the doctor or the nurses questions. They felt it wasn't their place. So they waited for me to arrive, and I was able to answer all their questions. Mm. But one evening, about a quarter to 12 at night, I got a phone call that the baby had passed. And the mother was crying, the young mother. She said, I don't know what to do. I, and I got on, I got dressed, jumped in my car, and I was there in 15 minutes. I, uh, I saw what the situation was. The nurse said that she had offered them the opportunity for her to take the um, tubes out of the baby, but they didn't know what to say. So I said, I spoke for them, and I said, yes, please, take the tubes out. Mm-hmm. So we all left the room, stood in the quiet hall, where the only sound was the telemetry machines until we were asked back in. Then the mother didn't know what to do. I said, now is your chance. Pick up your daughter, sit in the rocking chair, rock her, and then give her to your mother and give her to your grandmother. Mm. And this is what they did. It was a silent choreography of death, them slowly moving in and out of the rocking chair. At the end, they gave the baby back to the mom, and she laid her down. She was dressed in a tiny floral pink nightgown, and the mother then did something I'd never seen in my life and never will see again. She made her baby beautiful so she could make her way to God. That's what she said. She put cream on her face, rubbed it into her cheeks and her forehead, and then she cornrowed her hair, which was so fine because she had very little hair after this disease had taken its toll on her. And then she placed the baby back in the bed. Yes. I'm I'm just going to stop you at that juncture in the story. And and I thank you for just for time, but I thank you for sharing that. It's, um, it's really moving the idea of um, surrounded by family and love. Um, Thank you for that. Andre. Yes. You were introduced to the epidemic yourself when at the very beginning um, while you were touring your Broadway show Ain't Misbehavin in 1979 1980 yes um, uh, before there were even cases reported let alone uh, before the epidemic had been named can you tell me about those early days for yourself how you first came to see this virus I'm an old school guy mm-hmm. my mother was a devout Christian She would never let us leave the house without saying, put on the armor of God. Because you know it isn't physical things that you are fighting, but principalities. I've always worn that armor. Mm. 
And as growing up as a young black man, I've been tested on a daily basis. So I'm strong. I'm full of vinegar. Mm. So by the time we were doing the national tour of Ain't Misbehaving, we were in Los Angeles, and I was shaving for the matinee. And you know, when you shave, you're in the mirror. You can see every pore. And I noticed that there was little nodules on either side of my face, even into my neck, that were slightly raised and slightly tender. And I thought, what what is this? But I had to go do the show. They grew larger. They became more tender. I saw a doctor. The doctor asked me, had I been kissing my cat? I said, I don't own a cat. He says, then we must take it, take one of your lymph nodes out and do a biopsy. I said, you're going to cut me and you, all you're doing is guessing? I said, no. This went on through the tour, and the tour ultimately deposited me in Paris the following year. This is 1980 in Los Angeles. This is 1981 in Paris. And every doctor said the same thing. I don't know what this is, but we'll do a biopsy. I said, no. Now, every individual who's living during that time knows how he's living his life. And the light bulb went off in my head. This has to be the antibodies to whatever this condition is making themselves present in my body. And with that piece of knowledge, the swelling and the tenderness went away. I didn't get a clinical diagnosis until 10 years later in 1991. And you famously said to uh, the virus, um, let's have tea and talk about yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, first of all, I'd like to say, I'd like to um, demystify the acronyms, because we say HIV and, and AIDS all the time. But very few people understand that HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus and that AIDS is acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Now, we used to think that those were death knolls. But when you understand that they are indicators you can actually build up a resistance to whatever it is that's trying to take you down. I had lots of conversations with death. And when death came for me, I said, come in, sit down, let's have a cup of tea. Why are you here? And death said, oh, I thought you might be ready to go. Go where? I have too much to do. (laughs) You know, my list of tasks, my list of chores go on for longer than you can wait for me. And that, I know it's very metaphysical, Mm -hmm. but that's the way I lived with it, thrived with it, survived with it, and am now prevailing with it 40 years later. You have been, we're asking listeners for stories about people who stepped up. You have credited the Broadway community with stepping up in your life. Um, Absolutely. Tell me about that. Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. We do um, all kinds of fundraising, entertainment activities, and we raise millions of dollars, and it goes to what is now called the Entertainment Community Fund. And from that fund, anyone who is in need, and it doesn't have to do with HIV or AIDS, if you are in need, because need is part of a disease taking over your life. Mm-hmm. If you're stressed out by an emotional need, a spiritual need, a physical need, 
we will help you. Mm-hmm. We will help you. And there's nothing sad about the funds and how we raise them. We want people to live joyful lives. Also, when the gay men's health crisis, which was the first gay health crisis that was founded in 1982, I became a member then, and I've been working with them ever since. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of community a lot of coordinating, a lot of collaborating to to persist in your health. Mm. And if you can just get to the point where you say, it is not my time to be actively dying, the battle is almost won. Mm. Because many people, when they were diagnosed with HIV, gave up Mm -hmm. and prepared to die. I did not. Thank you for that. Akia, you're, you're sort of quietly applauding this concept. <laughs> um, we've got, you know, about a minute before we have to take a break. But um, how, how, did that, how does that resonate with you? Um, well, first, I'd just like to also say that because of Broadway Cares and because of what is now called the Entertainment Fund, it used to be called the Actors Fund, um, I think that's really the way that my family has been able to survive for many, many years because mm-hmm. of the generosity and because of all of the people who have come together um, to be able to support people living with HIV, people living with AIDS, people living with any kind of illness, people in the entertainment industry. Um, and also, I got to see a lot of Broadway shows because of Broadway Care. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, right. anytime right. that they had one of their nights where they were doing fund fundraising, I got to go see a show for free. And once again, that changed and altered the course of my life. And I owe not just my a lot of my health, being able to have health insurance, health care, a place to live, but also my creativity to the fact that this fund exists and continues to exist. And people like Andre, Mr. DeShields over here is such a big part of that. So... I'm talking with photographer and performance artist Kia LaBeja and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony award-winning actor Andre DeShields, both of whom have been living and loving with HIV for many years and who have witnessed some of the darkest and some of the greatest moments in the course of this epidemic. And we're taking your calls. Help us document the history of radical caretaking and mutual aid that defined so much of this epidemic, that has defined so much of this epidemic. If HIV and AIDS touched your life or your community and you or someone you know stepped up to respond in some way, tell me about it. More of our special is coming up. It's Felice Leon from the show team at Notes from America with Kai Wright. Something happens to me when I listen to the show. No matter the topic or the guest, I can always think of someone I want to tell about what I just heard. And I do. So if you're thinking about who in your life would enjoy this episode or another episode you've heard, please share it with them now. The folks in your life trust your good taste, and we would appreciate you spreading the word. Thanks. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and this is a special edition of our show inspired by a podcast I've been making for the past several months. It's called Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows, and it's a collection of stories from the early years of the HIV and AIDS epidemic in the United States. Andre DeShields and Keila Beja are a pair of artists and activists who are still with us. And now let's add another voice to this conversation. I spent many years as a journalist covering the impact of HIV and AIDS, just like my next guest. Linda Villarosa was an advisor on the Blind Spot podcast um, because she's been covering this epidemic for decades uh, as a reporter and editor at the New York Times and as an editor at Essence Magazine during throughout the 90s. Uh, her most recent book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, a Pulitzer Prize finalist last year. Linda, such a pleasure to have you. 
Thank you. I am so glad to be in such good company, too. It's wonderful to speak about this. I wonder if you just want to react to anything you've heard on the phones or from Andre and Kia, that what, what it's brought up for you. I think it's just, I just remember how confusing everything was in the early days when I started reporting on this in 1986, only because no one else wanted to do it. And even my first assignment for Essence, writing about um, AIDS and Black women, I thought, I wonder why I'm getting this assignment. I was so young. I was mostly a fitness writer. And it was because no one else wanted to do it. They were all so fearful. Mm. And there was so much confusion. And no one quite knew. There wasn't a test yet, even, at that time. Um, And so I feel grateful to have been. It shaped my career. Um, I stuck with it um, because it was so important, especially for Black people and other people of color. Mm. Uh, A text from um, Jeff in Portland, Oregon. I've been living with HIV and AIDS since 1984. We thought it was a San Francisco or New York thing. We're glad to still be alive. Many, many of those of us who did not survive were shunned even by family. That's why the L moved to the front of LGBTQ. Our lesbian allies were at our bedside. They they comforted us in our transition into death. God bless you all, and Mm. God bless our lesbian friends. Yes. the organizing that uh, went on throughout this, you covered as well, um, Linda. Um, what Anything Jeff said there that you want to react to? Um, I just love that part, and that got gets left out, mm-hmm. that it sort of was, this is a gay white man issue. This is, they, um, everybody was in ACT UP, but many of us were working in other ways. I was working as a journalist. There were organizations of queer people in general. There were organizations of Black people who were trying to push this movement forward. Um, And I think a lot of that gets lost. Not so much now, but certainly a a few years ago when uh, there were movies coming out, there was people writing about the history of ACT UP, and it was sort of like, wait, (laughs) not everyone was a white gay man here. May I? Yes, please. It is so important that we have mentioned racism, because if you're beaten down by racism, if you're beaten down by hate, both of which are diseases, mm. if you're beaten down by the church, if you're beaten down by the culture of these united plantations of America, mm. it's easy to succumb to any virus, but particularly one that has jumped from one species to the next. Now, In all of this conversation, in all of these experiences, we have discovered that there was a sample of this virus that existed in 1959. Mm -hmm. So it has something to do with the evolutionary process also. The more that we do to become less natural, if you get what I'm saying, to become much much less than the nature that we have to live with on a daily basis, to think that we are somehow, as Shakespeare puts it, the paragon of animals, and we are immune to anything. It's not true. We live on the planet Earth, which is an organic, sentient organism. Indeed. So whatever is in the planet has the potential of being in us. Our arrogance can get in our exactly. way. Exactly. Can get in our way. Let's, let us let me go to another call. Let's go to Lori in Brooklyn. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kai, and thank you for the show tonight and the series. I was a social worker, uh, a student in 1986 when I lost my very dear friend Tom to HIV, and I was determined to do something to make a difference. And uh, I pushed my way in to get an internship at a community-based, a a little storefront community-based organization, and I uh, was put in charge of finding locations to have support groups on Long Island that were not in the storefront, but in the community, in Rockville Center, in uh, Ronkonkoma, Bohemia, uh, 
13 and all, we, I would go to rabbis and, and uh, pastors and ask for a classroom. And um, one of the, I, I co-facilitated one of the groups for family members uh, eventually. And that group at times would have uh, 30 people on a Tuesday night sitting in all the chairs that were in the room, but then on milk cartons. And they were people from all different walks of life, parents of uh, injection drug users, parents of uh, gay men that uh, whom their parents were conflicted about supporting. And uh, there were times when, you know, the clergy turned me down. I remember somebody wiped his uh, hand uh, after I shook hands with him because mm-hmm. he was afraid I was going to give him HIV. Uh, I was also case managing at the time and we, the way that, uh, we, um, would come into work, this is pre-email, we would come into work at the receptionist, we would sign our name, but then in order for us to, uh, learn who among our clients had died, we would pick up the, uh, piece of paper, uh, below the, uh, that was uh, hiding another piece of paper that was the names of everybody who had died that week. And it was a long list. It filled the page and it changed every day. The receptionist would hear, she would write another name down. Mm. And when somebody died, you know, we, we went to their funeral almost always. One of us went to their funeral. So I'm, I'm very proud. I'm retiring in a few days. Uh, oh, congratulations. Uh, and <laughs> thank you. You know, and it just seemed like I, I was so happy that your series was around to raise this issue up. And it's so good for me to even be able to say the name of my friend, Tom McArdle, because mm. I loved him dearly. And we don't ever want to forget the beautiful people that uh, we've lost and that we carry with us. Thank you so very much for that, Lori. Uh, let's go to Scott in Durham, North Carolina. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for calling. Do you have a memory you want to share? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. I, oh, great. Uh, I, I was really struck by um, the comment about the pop being positive and, and never believing that the uh, that you were going to die, and um, that was something that really struck home for me. I was diagnosed HIV positive in 1992, um, and it was a very scary time. I was 21 years old, and um, I just kind of shut down, and so I didn't get treatment until 1997. Mm. Um, and I'm thankful I did at that point, and I needed the treatment, but uh, and I've been you know quite healthy ever since. Um, but uh, the thing that really struck me when I look back at myself in those 1992 to 1997 years is the culture of shame and, and the, the deep shame that I felt um, for being HIV positive. And, and I think there was a, I think there was a culture that was created um, and, you know, the gay plague and uh, the idea that, you know, we were less than because we were infected with this virus. And um, I am not ashamed that I have HIV, that I'm HIV positive. And I have met some incredible, beautiful people uh, because of this thing. And and I've lost a lot of, of beautiful friends, uh, especially in the early, the mid-90s. Uh, yeah. Gratitude and um, for that positivity of, of, you know, I live with HIV. I don't have yeah. to die with it. Thank you so much for adding that, Scott. Kia, I want to play a clip from the final episode of our Blind Spot podcast. Um, You described for us a moment in which you returned to the hospital room where your mom died. Um, uh, And I'm I'm sort of thinking of some of the things that Scott's saying here about not the the arc he's gone through, um, thinking about the virus in his life. Um, You went there to where your mom died to make art, to take photos uh, of the space. Listen to this clip. It's about a minute long. I had like a little Nikon power shoot camera and I started taking photographs of the hospital. Um, I took a picture of the first room that I saw her with the, like intubated. And I did it very like on the low. Um, But the security guard knew me forever. So he just let me upstairs. He was just like, yeah, you can go upstairs. I was like, cool. And for me, like it was more than just 
a hospital wing or a floor. There was just, there is something almost nostalgic and something almost happy, you know, to be like, oh, yeah, I hung out with my mom here. Oh, yeah, I hung out with my dad here. You know what? We were all together here. There was love here, regardless. I think that was the first time that I really understood the power of, like, what an image could do for you personally. I wasn't thinking about art or nothing like that. I just was kind of like, okay, I'm going to hold on to this. That line, there was love here regardless, um, Mm -hmm. that's kind of become a sort of informal tagline for the series for those of us (laughs) working on it. Um, Tell me about that moment and what was going on for you. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Sorry, I haven't listened. I haven't even listened to the episode yet, oh, no. so that's the first time that I've I've heard that. But um, I remember going back to the hospital and making these photographs, and I really didn't have any thought about what that meant. I just went, um, and actually, some years ago, I went back. So I made those photographs in t- like 2006, and then I think I went back. I think I went back in 2016. Um, And I took a photograph of a window. There's this window on the ninth floor, and I used to sit on this window. um, And I remember, like, when the sun would hit, when the sun would set, it would hit all the buildings in New York, and I would just sit at this window, and it was so beautiful. I wanted to capture that image. Um, But those those years, which seem so distant now, like, sometimes when I think back to it, I'm like— it almost feels like not real or it was like a story or something that I almost made up. Um, I had so many also fond memories there, even though there were so many sad memories there, you know, just I remember all the nurses and I remember spending time with both of my parents because by that time my parents were not together anymore. But um, but there was so much love. There was love. In and that um, they always made sure that I was never afraid, you know, and that I was always proud of who I was regardless and um, that we would all be together regardless, you know, of anything outside of, outside of that. Linda, there was love here. Um, A lot of folks right now are thinking about um, AIDS activist Hydea Broadbent, um, who died earlier this week. Oh my God. Um, uh, she died at age 39. Her actual cause of death has not been reported, but her father said that she had a heart attack and suffered a stroke last year. Um, uh, in 1992, at age seven, Idea appears on Nickelodeon with Magic Johnson, um, who had just come out as HIV positive. She became one of the most recognizable um, people, AIDS activists um, uh, in the 90s in the world. What did she represent? What do you, what's on? Is there anything on your mind about Idea Broadbent? Um, in this week. I just remember when we had her in Essence magazine Indeed. and she came and she was this this bright light and she represented this hope because there was so much negativity and there was so much fear around HIV and then this little girl there she is full of joy and life and hope and I was so I I just was surprised that she passed away because I had her frozen in time around her younger self. Um, you, you wanted to add oh yeah I'm sorry I've, I've caused you to that's okay you get yourself you, you you take it you take it easy yeah no when I when I heard about it I just I've been thinking about it every day since you know and I didn't know her personally but when I see her and I know her story I think about all of us you know like I was recently invited to this group on Instagram called Lifetime Survivors. And I think there's a bit of like a disconnect between this idea that, you know, children born with HIV, we're in a long-term survivor category, but Mm -hmm. we're really in our own category. We're lifetime survivors. And, you know, she's, she's one of the eldest of us, you know, and us as millennials, because most of, you know, the children that were born with HIV that are living now are actually of the millennial generation. Right, um, right. We don't know. We don't know what is next for us. You know, we don't know what our lifespan is like because there is no study. And so many of us have lived with this isolated and alone. 
And um, so when I, someone sent it to me and people have been sending it to me and I've been reading about it. And I was just like, I feel like I'm going to break down every time because mm. I just, mm. I feel so close and connected to her and love to her and honor to her and her life and everything that she's done. We're going to need to end with that thought, with the love um, for Hydea Broadbent um, and the end of uh, isolation um, and in the embrace of love. There was love there. There was love here. There was love in this room. If you want to hear more of Kia's story, she's in the final episode of our podcast, Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. You can find it in at blindspotpodcast.org. Journalist Linda Villarosa, multiple award winner Andre DeShields, artist and activist Kila Beja. Thank you all for spending time with us tonight. We're going to continue this important conversation that we started, The Plague in the Shadows. But now, more of the song, If You Believe, by our award winner, Andre DeShields, from the soundtrack of The Wiz, the song that Andre sang for Kia's mom's funeral. Believe there's a reason to be. Believe you can make time stand still. And know from the moment you try, if you believe, conversation about the AIDS epidemic doesn't end here. Come back to Notes from America later this week for a look at why people are still contracting HIV and dying from it, despite all the remarkable advancements in medical science that should be enough to end AIDS. Find that conversation here soon in our podcast feed, and be sure to check out the episodes of Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows, that we have shared here, too. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by Regina DeHere and Karen Frillman. Our theme music and sound design is by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando was at the board for the live show with help from Milton Ruiz. Special thanks to Lizzie Ratner, who was the lead reporter of our Blind Spot series, and to Emily Botine, Mike Kutchman, Bill O'Neill, Alicia Allen, and Sydney Bevins. Our team also includes Katarina Barton, Suzanne Gabber, Felice Leone, Siona Petros, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Instagram is a great place to keep up with the show and share what you heard here with people in your community. Follow us at Notes with Kai. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time. <laughs>